I have a traditional breakfast that I eat on Sunday mornings. I poach two eggs, put them on a half of, of uh, English muffin and, and applesauce and coffee. And my dog knows that, that meal. Uh, and Izzy, she, uh, she likes it that we go to a church that's only seven minutes away. But she has a sensation or a sense about things. You know, when dad's down the basement working on something all the time through the week, she knows that this is a special day. So she gives me a special look. And that means that when I get done with the eggs, I'm supposed to leave something on the plate for her. So, so I, I did it. And uh, she's at home waiting patiently, barking at whatever walks by. So making friends with our neighbors constantly. If you look up at the screen, I'd like us to read uh, this, this uh, I love that, you did that right. Uh, I'd like us to read this scripture together in unison. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Last week I had this same visual aid with me, and I'll get it out again. I'm not gonna do any construction work. You wouldn't wanna see what would happen. But I've been thinking a lot about balance in my own life. And uh, much of the time I'm half a bubble off center, and then I can find it in the center. I got, I got different ways to do this thing. But I, I'm, I'm looking for balance, and I'm, I'm not talking about something that you could necessarily measure with this. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, that scripture is my balance scripture. When I, when I hear a scripture, or I hear a teaching, or I hear an event in the world, I have to put those things together. Uh, does it love God? Does it love the neighbor? Who is my neighbor? All those questions go through my mind when I think about that balance. Jesus gives us this verse, and we find, it in, we find it in Matthew, we find it in Mark, we find it in Luke, and I think it's, it's the secret to balance. I said last week there were 613 precepts in the Jewish religion that had come down from Moses, the 10 that he had, and they had multiplied them up, and people were asking this question. What's the greatest commandment? And then Jesus gave them this, love God, love your neighbor. When those things are not in sync, you're out of balance. You really are. You have to get them, you have to get them together because it's actually a circuit. Loving God makes it possible to love your neighbor. That's the way it works. I like to think of those in, with two other words too. I think of them with the words worship and ministry. Last week I said, worship is expressing your love to God. That's really what we did this morning as we sang. Most of those songs were, were singing directly to God. When you love God with all your heart, it means that those things matter, that matter to God, will matter most to you. God loves people. He wants you to love people like he does. God wants you to love your neighbor in the same way that you want to be loved by others. That's all ministry. I like to use this definition. Ministry is meeting needs with love. Meeting needs with love. So loving your neighbor as yourself is what ministry is about. When God's love is working in you, 
It transforms you from being self-centered to being other-centered. Ministry is demonstrating God's love to others by meeting their needs and healing their hurts in the name of Jesus. Each time you reach out to love others, you're ministering to them. We are equipped and we're used by God to meet spiritual, emotional, relational, physical, and physical needs. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus didn't tell his disciples that he wanted them to be known for their preaching or for the buildings that they built or for what they wore. He wanted them to be known for their love for one another. The problem is that our neighborhoods and even our families include some pretty unsavory and difficult people. I don't know if your life is like that, but I find that. It's tempting to avoid these people that are hard to love. It's easier to stick with the people that are more like us. But God expects us to treat others exactly the same way we want to be treated ourselves. God expects us to show love to our neighbors, no matter who they are. Jesus used the word love as a verb. It's actually an action word. We like to think of it as a noun, something we have or, or don't have. Ask God to help you act lovingly toward everyone you encounter, especially when it's difficult. So let me ask some key questions about neighbor love. That's the part of the great commandment that we're looking at today. First of all, what does it mean to love myself? Love your neighbor as yourself means that you do for them whatever you would do for yourself. I wanna give a word of caution here. The love we're talking about will not be evident in your life if you do not have a positive self-love. I told you I'm old, I, I'm gonna prove it now. Um, if I don't put these other glasses on, I'm not gonna see anything, so, so I'm just gonna do that. I, I almost forgot this last week, and I did this week, so. I've learned at my other church, I sing in the choir, that I just changed my glasses in the car, but today I forgot that, so hopefully I can find this. <laughs> um, I want to give a, I'll go back here. <laughs> I, I'm talking about the need to have an honest, positive view of yourself. I, I regularly give an exercise to people that I'm counseling uh, before they're married. The exercise asks them to give 10 characteristics about themselves. And I always look to see if they've given me positive or negative characteristics. You'd be surprised how absolutely rare it is for somebody to give me 10 positive characteristics about themselves. That's often tough for us. Loving your neighbor as yourself must include a positive view of your own strengths and your own weaknesses. You are perfectly and wonderfully made by God. Now, I don't, I don't beat myself up or hate myself because I have little mechanical ability. Actually holding that level up is a real joke for anybody that knows me. It's a major accomplishment for me to find the dimmer switch on my headlights. I'm comfortable that God shaped me for something other than fixing cars. And some of my best friends are mechanics. I've worked it out. <laughs> Our self-esteem is affected by how closely we identify with Christ. Healthy self-esteem is important because some of us think too little of ourselves. On the other hand, 
some of us overestimate ourselves. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, be honest in your estimate of yourselves, measuring your value by how much faith God has given you. The key to an honest and, and accurate evaluation of yourself is having faith in God, who says over and over that you have value to him. Another meaning of loving yourself comes at the point of having faith in God's forgiveness. God's love means so much that he sent his, that God loves us so much that he sent his only son to forgive us of our sins. That forgiveness helps me to see my own value in his eyes. Jesus said some strong words about this forgiveness in Matthew chapter six, verses 14 through 15. He said, if you forgive others for the wrongs they do you, your father in heaven will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. So if we're to love ourselves, we need to accept God's forgiveness. And if we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, we need to forgive them for the wrongs that they've done to us. I love the idea of being forgiven of my own sins. So I wanna to learn to forgive those of others. This leads to a next question. It's a key question in scripture, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? God's concept of neighbor is broad, extending to the poor, to the disenfranchised, to the alien. The Pharisees tried to narrow the idea, limiting the command to those who were most like themselves. For the Jew, your neighbor was another neighbor. Now for the Pharisee, your neighbor was not only another Jew, but a Jew who kept all the same rules that they kept. Luke's account of this encounter between Jesus and a religious lawyer really puts special emphasis on this love of neighbor. I think that was because Luke was a Gentile. And the story of Jesus that he tells of the Good Samaritan kind of helped Luke to know where he stood, where a non-Jew fit into all of this. Now, I know this is one of the most absolutely familiar stories in the Bible. I'd be very surprised if there's anyone here who hasn't heard it before. But it still will help us to kind of walk through it because I believe that Jesus was doing more here than simply answering the who is my neighbor question. So let's begin to look at the story itself. And I'm gonna leave some scriptures up here for quite a while so you can keep looking at them. And when I was a kid, we all carried a Bible to, to church and I'm, I'm not so dumb that I think that happens all the time now. So this is gonna be like a Bible in your lap if you look up at the screen. This man has been on the edge of the crowd for a long time. He listens to Jesus with a mixture of response and inner objection. It's obvious that this man is a religious lawyer or a scribe of the Mosaic law. His official robes declare his position and his attitude communicates the confident air of refined legalism. At the center of his forehead is a meticulously positioned phylactery symbolizing his orthodox beliefs. The small box, small black calfskin box is bound tightly with leather thongs. This reflects an ancient custom that we see in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses six through eight. Moses wrote, these commandments that I give to you today are to be on your heads. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols 
of your hands, on your hands, and bide them on your foreheads. So the practice of the, of the phylactery and wearing it resulted. Sacred passages like these two are included. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those two passages were written on very, in very small letters on parchment, and then they were placed in the box. These two were repeated together over and over as a summary of the law. I can say with certainty that those two verses were in that man's phylactery on his head as he was, as he was encountering Jesus. Have you ever had someone come and stand expectantly on an edge of a conversation that you're having with somebody else? I think Jesus senses that the lawyer has something to say to him. So as Jesus finishes what he's saying, perhaps he turns his gaze on the lawyer. So the lawyer asked Jesus a question that was calculated, it was challenging, it was biting. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's quite a question. Does the man really want an answer or is he just trying to trap Jesus? Jesus knows what the man is up to. The man knew the answer before he asked. Jesus is not unsettled by it. Luke chapter 10, verse 26. He carefully words his response with another question. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The Lord seems to know that the man wants to answer his own question. What he quotes from the law is inscribed on the parchments in the, in the phylactery box on his forehead. He answered in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied very quickly in verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. And then he adds the words from Leviticus 18.5, do this and you will live. This man didn't want a simple answer like that. He waited too long for an opportunity with Jesus to be cut off so quickly. So in verse 29, he says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? With incredible patience, Jesus recasts the question and answers the one that this man should have asked, not who is my neighbor, but how should I act as a neighbor? Here's how the story begins. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. It sounds like a quote out of Princess Bride, doesn't it? <laughs> when I first saw that. Uh, uh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> a, a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Imagine the crowd as Jesus tells the story of a man who is robbed, stripped, beaten, and left to die on the treacherous road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Everyone in the crowd knows about the anger of the bloody way 
as this 22-mile stretch of road had come to be known. It was a precarious road because of robbers who hid among the rocks, crevices, and caves. No one was safe along this road that makes a 3,500-foot descent to Jericho. The crowd listened intently as Jesus tells about the priest and the Levite and what was happening along the way. They listen in anguish as Jesus says that the religious leaders pass by on the other side of the road. Imagine the lawyer's response to that. Jesus has made an impression with his illustration, but the lawyer is not ready for the telling twist that follows as Jesus continues. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. A gasp then rippled through the crowd. The name Samaritan invoked that. No one in the crowd, least of all the the lawyer, expected that turn in the parable. The words priest, Levite, and Israelite. That's what they were all waiting for. They knew how to fill in the blank. They were frequently used together in almost thoughtless repetition in talking about the Hebrew people. Everyone had been following the story, expecting an Israelite to be the third character on the road. Of all the substitutes for Israelite in his story, Jesus could not have startled the crowd and the lawyer any more than the use of a hated Samaritan. The Jews truly hated the Samaritans. Years of conditioning had contributed to their prejudice. This animosity had been handed down from generation to generation ever since the defeat of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, when many Jews were dragged off into exile in Babylonia. Those who remained had had intermarried with the Assyrians who were brought in to populate and occupy the land. They became half-breeds, absolutely hated by the Jews. After the exile, the Samaritans even offered to help Zerubbabel rebuild the temple. The Jews felt such strong antagonism against them that they refused their help, and hostility intensified through the years. It was at a fever pitch in Jesus' day. No wonder there's shock and anguish in the crowd of listeners when a Samaritan is made the surprise hero of the story. No one's more disturbed than the lawyer. He asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus used a half-breed as an example of what it means to be a neighbor. Like all the other parables, this story has a single central theme. It tells us one flaming truth about God and the quality of life that he wants us to live. Jesus exposes an aspect of God's love that he came to reveal and then to reproduce compassion in all of his followers. The spotlight of the drama is on the Samaritan, but what he exemplifies is more than human kindness in response to specific need. The point of the parable is God's 
Love is spontaneous. It is unqualified. It is never limited by the rules of religion. Jesus himself was the spontaneous incarnate love of God. In effect, Jesus tells his own story in the parable. The world he came to save was literally a Jericho road. And his response to human suffering was marked by spontaneity. This is a parable of contrasts. Jesus wants us to see and feel the spontaneous love of the Samaritan in response to the calculated neglect and qualified concern of religious people. As we read this parable, we're challenged to put ourselves in the parable. It is the story of the wounded, the wounders, and the kind of wound healers that we are to be. The wounded are all around us. They are all those who have been debilitated physically or psychologically or socially by no fault of their own. We can't read this parable without asking, who is the wounded person on the road for me? He or she may be in your own family, maybe among your friends or at work or in our church or in your community. We can be wounders or wound healers in our relationship with them. Now, Jesus will have accomplished his purpose in the parable if we identify the wounded in our lives and long to express the spontaneous love that is portrayed in the Samaritan's immediate response to suffering. I want to say a few more things about the characters in this parable. The priest who came along the road uh, did not conceive of his calling as a person or a religious leader in that situation on the road. He was on his way to Jerusalem to perform religious duties. His duties were so important to him that the needs of a person were secondary, secondary to being on time to officiate at the rituals of the temple. This was one of two weeks in the year where he was privileged to serve in the temple. It was his number one calendar item. The Levite did no better than the priest. Now the Levites were the assistants to the priest, so the, the priest's drive was the same for the Levite. His appointment to serve in the temple was just as pressing. Neither man stopped. Perhaps it was due to fear that the bandits would come back or perhaps they just didn't want to touch a possibly dead body because that would have rendered them impure and unable to serve the weak in the temple. I was about at this point in writing this message on Tuesday when I got a phone call from my friend Dave up in Estes Park. He asked, are you doing anything tomorrow? And I gave him my high priestly reason and told him while I was working on my message. He then told me that his wife, Kim, was having foot surgery on Wednesday, and he was wondering if I could come up and help him get her from the car to the house. Dave's a friend that I met while taking pictures in the park. He's an agnostic trying very hard to be an atheist. I, I, I really intrigue him. He doesn't know anybody like me, and I don't know too many people like him. And we've really grown close as friends. Now, I really didn't want to do this. He said he might have someone else he could ask. I told him to check out that lead, and if he still really needed me, I'd come up. 
God truly has a sense of humor. I, I was quickly aware that I had just moved to the opposite side of the road. I was being the priest and Levite over there. I called Dave back and told him that we'd be there at 10 o'clock on Wednesday morning. Now, Dave lives on the side of a, a monster hill, and he, he has very, very challenging steps. I would have had trouble getting in there with my broken ankle last year. He really needed our help, and we are glad we did it. I've actually come to realize that it was kind of a God thing. It says, I, I love you, I care for you. The contrast of the priest and the Levite with the Samaritan could not have been more pointed and startling. Look at what the Samaritan did. Scripture says he went to him. He used wine and oil to administer first aid. He personally bandaged his wounds. He put the bloody man on his own donkey. Can you imagine what that did to whatever the Samaritan was wearing? He took him to an inn. He cared for him, perhaps all night long. He gave the innkeeper two denarii, or about 40 cents in our money. That was the equivalent of two days' pay for a laborer. Listen to his final instructions to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This indicates that in his mind, he's not done. He's coming back to check on the wounded man and to settle up with the innkeeper. The, Samar the Samaritan totally fulfilled the Leviticus 19.18 portion of the summary of the law that the lawyer had so glibly repeated. He loved his neighbor as himself. Healthy self-love enabled him to care about a man in need. Now, there's an implication here for the priest and Levite. They didn't love themselves sufficiently to help the beaten survivor. Their relationship with God was based on the fulfillment of rules and regulations of their religion, more than on the deeper meaning of the commandment. Insufficient love for oneself as one who's loved by God will always result in stingy, self-centered responses to the needs of others. The traditions of their positions had taken a terrible toll on their capacity to care personally for others. They were slaves to the system. Meanwhile, back to the lawyer, now Jesus is asking the questions. The lawyer tried to interrogate Jesus and now he's the one being interrogated. Jesus has won the dispute. Now Jesus asks in verses 36 and 37, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Suddenly we feel what the lawyer must have felt. The admonition is for us. Once we believe in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, we are immediately called into demanding, challenging, and very exciting go and do likewise kinds of responses in our own lives. The wounded of the world are now our agenda. The wounding people, wounding people with neglect is never acceptable. Are we willing to put aside our judgments, our exclusivism, our fear of involvement, privacy, our schedules, and our time? To be available for the coincidences, for the God things that will happen constantly if we're willing. 
Jesus would not allow the narrow view of neighbor among his disciples then, and he doesn't allow it now. The question is very current. It's common to hear voices of protest when our country reaches out to another country that's hurting. The question is asked, well, why are we helping them when, when we have needs here at home? That's a who is my neighbor question. Our love for God inspires and requires us to love one another. Our love for God taps us into a big, big worldwide neighborhood. I want to introduce Sarah Jackson of, of uh, Casa de Paz. She's spoken several times at our church. You got that picture? I hope you do. Oh, it's there, but it's not there. That's very misleading, by the way. <laughs> uh, several years ago, Sarah Jackson went on a trip to the U.S.-Mexico border with a humanitarian aid organization working on immigration issues. She spoke with people who had been deported and learned about people's reasons for migrating and heard the dangers that they face in doing so. She saw firsthand families being separated. Then she returned to Colorado and couldn't return to her normal life after this experience. She decided to do something about it because she believes in families. She believes that they should be together. So she opened Casa de Paz. To keep the, out, the doors of Casa open, Sarah started Volleyball Internacional. 100% of the profit from that volleyball league is donated to meet the expenses of CASA. This information comes from their website. CASA de Paz began in 2012 as a small one-bedroom apartment offering hospitalities to families separated by immigrant detention. This apartment was located directly across the street from the ICE facility. It, it was Sarah's own apartment. She makes the statement, uh, if you look on that site, there's a picture of it. and and in her bedroom, there's a kind of a double-sized bed, and there's a single. She says, the single is mine. She says, but if somebody needs that, then I go out and sleep on the couch. If somebody needs the couch, I go find another place to sleep. The website says, our work has always been to host families whose loved ones are being detained and individuals who have been recently released. In 2017, we moved into a larger rented house with more space so that we would not have to turn people away. Today, Casa de Paz provides visits and emotional support, shelter and meals, access to phones, Wi-Fi, computers, and transportation. Detention is a difficult time that tears families apart and creates a financial burden. So we have always offered our services free of cost. Since first opening our doors, we've hosted over 2,300 migrants, immigrants from 30 countries, and the need only continues to grow. They write, our mission is to reunite families separated by immigrant detention, one simple act of love at a time. Our vision is to contribute to the peace and stability of immigrants in the United States. Sarah's hope and prayer is always to help ease the isolating experience of immigrant detention, one simple act of love at a time. That's the kind of neighbor that she's chosen to be. The joy of following Jesus is experienced when, when self-centered caution is replaced by the inner motivation of instinctive love. When we accept the Lord's love for us and love ourselves deeply 
as we are, as we are loved by him, then neighbor love becomes possible. It will flow freely in our lives. It's my prayer that we will learn to love God with everything we have, and that as we love God, His Holy Spirit will empower us to love others in a way that will bring peace to the very least in our world. In a moment, you're invited to come down uh, the center aisles here and to receive communion. Take a piece of bread and dip it into the juice. I'll say this represents the body broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. You may answer with the words, thanks be to God, or thank you, or whatever you feel. And then return to your seats by the side aisles. There's also gluten-free bread and juice in the center of each tray. For those unable to come forward, our communion usher will bring it to you. Just raise your hand or make eye contact with her. Our, services, our, our servers and musicians will receive communion first, and then you're free to come forward. My friends, this is the Lord's table. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, you're welcome here. To this table come people who have much and people who have little, people who are strong and people who are weak, people who know much about God and people just beginning to learn, people who have come to church all their lives and people here for the first time, people who know they are blessed and people who aren't quite sure. Because this is not our table, it's the Lord's table. And the same Jesus Christ who died for all people welcomes all people to come and see and taste that God is good. Communion is a reminder of what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son. The God who created us is the God who forgives us and takes care of us. The God who calls us to wholeness and everlasting life with Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit here and now. As we share this bread and this cup, we celebrate the love that binds us to one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so it is that all who trust Jesus, whether a little or a lot, and want to trust him more, are invited to come and be a part of this feast he has prepared. Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ, on the, Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we, we would each personally make a great commitment to this great commandment to love God and to love others. I'm really praying that we would grow in our love relationship with you because as we do, we will better understand how much you love us and the people of this world that you created. Thank you for sending your only son into this world so that we could know your forgiveness and peace. May we be committed to pass it on by sincerely loving our neighbors with the love you have poured out on us. Lord, show us the practical things that we can easily do 
and give us courage to do the difficult things you have planned. Open our eyes to see the people of our world and the problems of this world from your perspective. It is our joy to worship you today in this time of communion. We do this in remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection. We do this as an expression of our love for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.